0: We want to go ahead and I want to ask you, if you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians. i want to go ahead and dismiss our kids as you're turning there. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Galatians 4, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 8 through 11. So Galatians 4, 8 through 11. God wants... His glory to be known. He wants it to be known, to be savored, to be experienced, and to be enjoyed. Knowledge of God's holiness, His hallowedness, is why we were created. The world exists as an outpouring of the goodness of the glory of God. When God spoke the world into being, he announced at the conclusion of each step that it was good, that it was a declaration of his power, a reflection of his beauty, a product of his wisdom. So the psalmist sings, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge the knowledge of the lord brings life and peace whereas the lack of the knowledge of the lord brings enslavement suffering and death isaiah 5:13 says my people go into exile for lack of knowledge their honored men go hungry their multitude is parched with thirst romans 1:18 says that the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In his work of redemption, Jesus Christ came not only to secure our release from sin, but to make God in all of his glory known to us. John 1, 18, one of my favorite verses of the Bible says that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. God pours out many, 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 many blessings on mankind. But none are as sweet as the blessing of knowing God and being known by Him. To be with him in a right relationship. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, verse I have quoted often from this pulpit, says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. about God. It is about knowing God himself. Faith isn't just affirming that certain things are true. It's an action of belief, a response to God's self-disclosure in Jesus Christ. Something that turns from sin and turns to him. The gospel doesn't just announce that Jesus has secured a release from sin and judgment. It does that but it also calls us to come and to know God in Christ, not merely to know him with the mind intellectually, but also to know him relationally as our own father. It is something to say, I know God. But every believer, everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, can rightly claim that because they know him through the work of Jesus Christ. That knowledge is the key focus of our text this morning. In Paul's battle for the faith of the Galatian churches, he was combating a lethal deception that said that a person could only receive salvation, that he could only be uh, declared righteous in the sight of God if he kept the commandments of the Mosaic law. In Galatians 4, 8-11, Paul contends with the Galatian believers not to return to old ways, which were consistent with their lives that they had before Christ, but to live according to the knowledge of God they had come to have through their relationship with Jesus. In doing so, Paul gives us insight into what takes place in conversion when someone goes from being a sinner, estranged from God, to being a son of God in faith, in Christ. And as we look at this, uh, we want to focus in on that transformation, but also on what it means to know God, to be known by Him, and how that affects the way we live. So let's begin by reading our text. Uh, If you would, please stand for God's Word. I'll be reading from Galatians 4, verses 8 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord. Formerly, When you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, these are words that are grief-stricken. They are difficult to read. But I think there's a reason for us to find joy in them, and also a warning. In these words, Paul indicates to us that it is possible to be very zealous for righteousness, but unless we know Christ, that zeal, no matter how hot it burns, is wasted effort that it is vain. He puts that a little bit more specifically in Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, when speaking about his Jewish brothers and sisters who had not yet accepted Jesus as their Savior, Paul said, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Well, in Galatians 4, verse 7, uh, which we looked at last week, Paul told the Galatians that they were, in fact, sons of God. That God had freed them from their enslavement to sin, and that he had freed them from their guardianship under the law, and that he had adopted them as his own sons with Christ to be heirs with him. And now, in verses 8 through 11, Paul shows us that adoption, that that adoption God does, isn't just a title. It isn't something just to put uh, on your desk to say, hey, I'm a son of God. Rather, it is something that describes the relationship which we now have with God through Christ, which accords with the way that Jesus has come to make the glory of God known to us. In the time we have this morning, what we want to do is we want to explore uh, really three questions. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Second, what does it mean to be known by God? And then finally, we want to answer the question of why this knowledge matters. How does it affect the way we're meant to live in this freedom of sonship? How do we press into the inheritance that's, that's ours? That's what we want to look at today. And what we come to in the conclusion, something that um, I really, so the main idea of this is really that if we have come to know God, and if we have come to be known by him, we must take care not to fall back into the vanity of, of our old ways of sin. So if we've come to know God and if we've, been, if we've come to be known by God, we must take care not to fall back into the vanity of our old ways. When you read this passage, you can sense Paul's agony, his frustration at what was happening with the churches of Galatia. They were forfeiting the riches of Christ for the bondage of an alive, and so you can see and hear that frustration. We're going to touch on that. But what I really want to get into here, I think the real wonder of this passage, is what Paul says about what is changed when you go from being a sinner or estranged to God and you become a son of God through faith. How you know God and how you are known by Him and how that then is meant to guide you and keep you in the faith. And that's really what we want to look at today. So let's begin by answering our first question. What does it mean to know God? What does it mean to know God? Well, we all know that there is a big difference between knowing someone and, actu- like, and actually knowing something about someone and actually knowing them. So you could go on Wikipedia and you can learn lots of facts about Abraham Lincoln. You could actually go to more authoritative sources like biographies and study his political agenda. You could go to the memorial at D.C. and see the bust of Abraham Lincoln standing there on the hill. You could even go to Ford's Theater where he was murdered. You could go across the street to the ho- to the, the bed where he, he died on. You could devote years of research and know a great deal about him, but you could never say that you really know Abraham Lincoln because to do that, you'd have to actually have met the man. Knowledge of someone is very different than actually knowing them. Knowing someone, more specifically, uh, knowing God involves knowing him as he has revealed himself and it involves having a relationship with him a fellowship with him which we understand through the gospel is something that has been made available and made possible through the work of jesus christ jesus came to make god known to you and i don't mean by when i say that i don't mean that he just came to give you theological facts about god Obviously, Jesus did come to expose to us the truth of who God is. Uh, That's a necessary part of having a deep knowledge uh, of someone. And that's part of the deeper knowledge that we're talking about uh, when we're talking about what it means to know God. You obviously can't know someone if you're out of touch with who they are. I could go on all day about my wife, who loves licorice jelly beans, and loves ice skating, and loves rooting for the Kentucky Wildcats. But if you know Ellie, you'll know that and you'll know that none of those things are true and you'll wonder if I'm talking about a different woman. In the same way, we need to know who God is. We need to know what sets him apart. We need to know the truth of who he is if we're to actually say that we can know him. Knowledge is essential to love. Otherwise, you'll be in love with the idea of God and not actually be in love with God himself. You cannot claim to love God if you believe false things about him, things which contradict what he has exposed about himself in his word and in Christ. In verses 8 and 9, Paul really zeros in on why this matters. There was a time when the Galatians did not know God. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So there are two levels of this lack of knowledge, this ignorance of the Galatians, which Paul touches on prior to their coming to faith. First, the Galatians did not possess a true knowledge of who God is. They were ignorant of who God, the true God was, and rather they were lost in paganism. They worshipped idols. They worshipped gods that were of their own creation. Likely, because of the Roman influence, they probably worshipped the emperor who was said to be divine. They had false ideas about the world. They had false ideas about the God who rules it. And they were completely unaware of who God was. Uh, where, where God says that he alone is God, that there is no other, they worshipped a plurality of God's. Where God calls people to be holy as he himself is holy, they chose instead to pursue sin. Where God laid out before them a path of life, they chose a path that led to death. And the second level of the Galatians' ignorance is that they did not know God or relate to him the way he had made them to do. They didn't even know they were supposed to be doing that. When I read this passage in Paul's description of the Galatians, these men and women prior to faith, the passage that comes to my mind really is Acts 17, where uh, Luke tells us about how Paul had gone to a similar uh city, Athens, a city that was filled with idols uh, and idol, idol worship, and we're told there by Luke that when Paul was there waiting on his friends to get there, wandered around, he, he was struck within his soul because he found idols and altars everywhere, and even found an altar that was dedicated to the unknown God, just in case they left one out. And he told the Athenians, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the object of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown I proclaim to you. And then Paul went on to to explain the gospel just as he had to them, the men of Athens, just as he had done in the cities of Galatia, how God made the world and everything in it. How man sinned and broke God's law. How God determined the history and the boundaries of every nation. How the time of their ignorance was at an end. And how God had set Jesus up as the resurrected king who called them to repentance and faith. To be saved. To be joined in this inheritance of faith. Paul's description of the Galatians prior to their faith really is a universal description of everyone who has ever lived. This is who we are apart from Christ. Now, we may not worship carved images. We may not have an altar in our backyard. But we are naturally opposed to God, choosing to live according to the natural desires of a corrupt nature, not according to his perfect law. Romans 3 tells us that we have all sin, that we all fall short of the glory of God, that we deserve God's justice. And while we may, all, may, while we may in fact come to a knowledge of true facts about who God is, we cannot claim to really know God unless we have that second part, that relationship with Him, that relationship we weren't meant to have as His created beings. Knowing God is important. Knowing not just the truths about who God, uh, God is, but actually having that relationship with Him. It's what you were created to do. And the opposite of knowing God, we are told, is slavery. Look at at what Paul says to the Galatians about who they were before they came to know God through Christ according to this true knowledge, the gospel of grace which they had received. He says they were enslaved, that they were enslaved to things that by nature are not gods; that they served them as gods, even though they weren't worthy of that affection. He develops that idea a little bit more in the last part of verse 9, Hearkening back to what he's already said in verse 3, saying that they were enslaved to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. This is who we are apart from Christ. We are slaves to sin and death. We follow after the course of this world. We follow after Satan according to the spirit of disobedience that reigns in our hearts. We do it gladly, and we care not for the God who we were created to know and love. A lack of knowing God puts us on a path of sin, which then leads to destruction. Jesus came to set us free from that enslavement. He came to redeem us from the punishment that we deserve. He came to restore us to the right relationship of peace that we were meant to have with God. He came to bring knowledge of who God is to us. And then when we are, in, when we are joined to him by faith, we come to know God and to relate to him the way we were first intended to do. When Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. He wasn't just talking about the way that he is is making the world new or about the way he will make our broken bodies new. He is also talking about the way he binds us together with God in a covenant relationship that stands forever. That's why the author of Hebrews wants you to know that Jesus is a new and better Adam because Jesus restores what Adam broke. He makes us new. He shows us who God is, and then he ushers us in to relate to God, no longer as an enemy, but actually as our own Father, which is what we read in Galatians 4-7. When we talk about knowing God, what it means to know God, we are talking about more than just being up to speed on good theology. We're talking about living in a right relationship with God, something that's only possible through faith in Jesus Christ something that we live in as adopted sons and daughters through the power of the Holy Spirit as he works in us. We're talking about the greatest calling that has ever been put on your life. We're talking about a lifestyle that satisfies the heart with a joy and with a peace that passes all understanding. That's what it means to know God. And if you're a believer then that is the inheritance that Jesus came to secure for you when he entered the world, went to the cross, rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. That is what it means to know God. If you don't know God like that, today is the day to start because the invitation is open. And if that's you, talk to me after the service because I want to tell you more about how you could actually know this God. So we've answered the question, what it means to know God. What does it mean then to be known by God? What does it mean to be known by God? It is one thing to say we know God. It is a whole other thing to say that he knows us. Now, we have watched the movie Cars more times than I care to recount. I never thought this would make it into a sermon, but here it is. There is this rusted out pickup named Fred in the movie Cars. And you know it's his name because he has a license plate in the front of his rusty bumper that says Fred. Now, Fred is not one of the main characters, but he shows up everywhere because he's always trying to get into these restricted areas to meet his heroes, these celebrity race cars. And at one point, he's trying to get into the infield of the track, and he's passed by the car version of Mario Andretti, uh, who's on his way in. And to his utter amazement, Mario Andretti looks at him and says hey, Fred, to which Fred then turns to the security car who's blocking him and says, Mario Andretti knows my name. You've got to let me in. Actually, I'm I'm a little concerned with how accurate that was. Okay. (laughs) Obviously, that was not going to be enough to get Fred into the infield, was it? Because Mario Andretti figured out Fred's name from his license plate That didn't mean he actually knew him, and that certainly didn't mean that Fred was going to get into the restricted area he wanted to be in. Now, if we are going to enter the throne room of heaven, if we're going to be with God in his presence, it requires that not just that we know God or that we know about God, but that he, in fact, knows us. Look at what Paul says here in verse 9. He says that once the Galatians, and by extension we, that we did not know God. That we did not know the reality of who he is. That we were not in a right relationship with him. Rather, we were at war with him. But now we have come to know him. And then it's like he can't even get the words out of his mouth because he's clarifying. He says, Oh, rather, we have come to be known by God. Knowing God is a two-way street. If you were trying to get into a restaurant that's been fully booked and then you walk in and you look at the hostess and you say, I know the owner. They are not going to let you have a seat unless the owner knows you and comes out and vouches for you. At a fundamental level, knowing God is only significant for our eternal destiny if he knows us. And that's what Paul is reminding the Galatians about here. He's talking about a relationship they have with God where they know him and he knows them. When we say we know God, we're not saying that somehow we've managed to be holier than everyone else or smarter or better or that we just managed to get it right. We're saying that God has done what the law and what we couldn't do. We were lost. God found us. He restored us to Himself. He revealed to us who He is. He knows us. And He wants us to know Him. That's what it means to know God and to be known by Him. In these two verses, Paul is accounting for the beautiful transformation that happens when we come to faith. Now, previously, we did not know God. We were not in a right relationship with Him. But now, we know Him through faith and more particularly, We are known by him in this relationship of a father and a son. Now, if we're not careful, we can miss the significance of what Paul is trying to communicate when he says, you are known by God. We might be tempted to pass this off as just part of God's omniscience. Of course he knows me. He knows everything. But we're talking about a knowledge here that goes far deeper than mere omniscience. We're talking about a God-initiated relationship where God not only knows of us, but that he knows us through and through and that he loves us as his own sons and as his own daughters through this covenant of salvation which Jesus bought and secured when he went to the cross. In the Old Testament, God often talks about his knowledge of a person within the context of a covenant relationship. One of the most vivid examples of this is in Genesis 18 verse 17 where God on the cusp of delivering justice to Sodom and Gomorrah says and gives us an idea into his mind we read this that the Lord said shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him for I have known him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. You see how God looks at that knowledge there within the context of the covenant promises which Christ fulfilled. Given all that we have seen about the particular significance of that covenant promise to Abraham for how that's realized in Christ, how it looked forward to the coming of Jesus who is the promised offspring who secured those blessings through his work and then extended them to the world and we can see how all of a sudden we've come full circle again and Paul can really call the Galatians children of Abraham and that God's statement of his knowledge of Abraham really stands out here because Paul is in saying he knows you, Galatians. God knew Abraham. He knew chose him to make him the means through which he would bring the promised messiah to make to bless the world with salvation. And here is Paul using the same idea talking about the Galatians saying that they are known by God, that their covenant of that this covenant of salvation is theirs since they've been joined to it by faith in Christ, who is the fulfillment of that promise. If this were the only place where God spoke of his knowledge of someone like this, then it probably wouldn't be as big of a deal as I think it is. But in, in the Hebrew, the word to know, when it, when it gets used in relationship of God knowing someone, it always carries the idea of knowing someone personally and relationally. And it is often used by God when he's talking about how he has chosen someone to set them apart for great purposes and to bless them And this idea we see carries over into the New Testament, uh, which which is clearly the case here when Paul talks about how God knows the Galatians. Paul isn't saying, oh, God knows you as if God is just aware of the Galatians or that he's just acquainted with them. But rather, Paul is saying, as one scholar points out, that God had entered into a committed relationship with them in their experience. God's knowing of us goes deeper than just his creation of us. In Luke Luke 12, 7, Jesus tells us that our heavenly Father knows the number of the hairs that are on our head and that apart from his say-so, not one of them can fall to the ground. Ephesians 1, when we read Ephesians 1, we see that God knew us and chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then in Romans eight twenty nine, we read that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, to be sons, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, friends, the doctrine of election has puzzled and divided the church for many, many years. But for all the angst and confusion that it can cause, the Bible would have us know and understand that the reason we can know God is because he knew us first and because he knows us. We have confidence then that, we will, that he will, in fact, see his perfect will through, that he will not lose one of his beloved sheep And that even when our hearts grow cold, and when our love fades, and we are tempted by the appeal of sin, even when we fall to that temptation, he will hold us fast. For those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And therefore, we confess and believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God's love for His people is eternal. It is perfect. It is perfecting. If you are in Christ, understand that you know God because He knows you. Because in His sovereign will, He chose to include you in a fellowship with His beloved Son to exalt Him where you get to experience this unfading love and this blessing of righteousness. The doctrine of election is not given to us to make us question whether we're in or out. It is given rather to be a rock on which to stand, an anchor for our souls to know that the God who is is a God who loves sinners and rescues them from their sin and that he's a God who holds his people fast and knows them with every one of their faults and with all of their blemishes and still loves them because he's made them his children. I find that it is a short road to trying to secure God's favor through good works once we leave that truth. When we forget that we love God because he first loved us, that we have come to know him because he knows us, it is not hard to convince ourselves that we can lose what we did not earn. And so we cut at the chains of grace that hold us fast to Christ, preferring instead to be tossed by the stormy seas of our own wisdom and our own understanding where many a person has made a shipwreck of their faith. God does not abandon his people. And knowing that he knows us and that he loves us goes a long way to quiet the soul, even when Satan attacks it and tries to accuse us that we are not worthy of the love of God And it goes a long way from preventing us from holding to a vain faith. So, I commend the doctrine of election to you. Use it wisely, understand it correctly, but press into it because it's it's there for you. So, we've seen what it means to know God, we've seen what it means to know, be known by Him. Our last question here is how can we avoid a vain faith? How can we avoid a a vain faith? The reason Paul has been focusing here on knowing God and on God's knowing of us is because he is so concerned about the Galatians and their faith. In the last part of verse 9, he asks them how, after coming to this knowledge of God, after the way that God has rescued them out of their former ignorance through the gospel of grace which they had received, after they know how God loves them, how can they turn now to the things that he rescued them from? He says, how can you turn your back again to the weak and the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, if we read this passage out of context, we may think that Paul has indicated that the Galatians were falling into, back into idol worship. But when we read verse 10, we see that that is not the case at all. We see that the Galatians are starting to observe days and months and seasons and years. And we get a sense of the gravity of the situation and Paul's own astonishment at the bewildering actions of the Galatians from verse 11 when Paul says, I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain, that my work is nothing, that you are casting your precious pearls into the sea. We know from everything we've already read in this letter that the Galatian believers were being pressured to to keep the law of Moses since they were being told that the only way they could partake of the blessing of Abraham, uh, of the salvation God had said he was bringing through Abraham, was if they kept those commands. And apparently they were in fact caving into those pressures because we see that they were observing Jewish customs regarding days, months, seasons, and years. And we must be careful not to read too much into Paul's list here since he's mostly piling these terms up in a way to, to just emphasize the fact that the Galatians are starting to adopt these customs that they're starting to trust in these traditions and that they're coming under the enslavement of the law rather than pressing into the grace of Christ. Now, we there's a little it's a little interesting. This is a, conf- a bit of a confusing passage to be honest because we know in instances recorded uh, especially in the book of Acts that Paul Uh, sometimes refers to the observance of the sabbath certain feasts and festivals as a matter of conscience it would be going way too far to say that paul equated the observance of these things even circumcision as inherently sinful after all luke tells us how paul had timothy circumcised since he was part jewish And that when he went up to the temple, uh, he would go up to the temple to pray at times. That he went to synagogues on the Sabbath where he preached Jesus as the Christ. And now here we're reading Paul coming down hard on the Galatians for observing these things. Uh, And it's a little bewildering to wonder, well, well, Paul, are you being a hypocrite here? Paul even goes so far as to indicate that the Galatians' subjection of themselves to the law this way is as if they are going back to the paganism that Christ rescued them out of. So this is a strong statement. It is really astonishing to hear Paul, a former Pharisee, speaking about the Old Testament law like this. Why is Paul so disturbed about the actions of the Galatians themselves? Well, when we consider these verses in terms of the situation, I think we can get a grasp on what was going on, why this was such a big deal. Paul is showing them that by embracing these commandments, the Galatians were, were jettisoning their grasp on the gospel of grace. They were returning to the slavery of their old ways, relying on works to try and get God's favor for themselves. They were not acting according to the gospel, what, what the gospel of grace had made clear to them, which was that they had been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. When Paul himself observed certain traditions, it wasn't because he thought that those things added in any way to his acceptance before God. Rather, he explained to the, the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 9:19. 9, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law then he says, "I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing." So the Galatians weren't observing days, months, seasons, and years because they were trying to reach the Jews who lived in their their community with the gospel. They were doing it because they were believing the lie that they could in fact earn God's favor, that they had they were that they could strong-arm God's love and earn a place within his household by 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 returning to the slavery that Christ had purchased them from. By taking on this new burden, the Galatians were returning to the chains of the old age. Though the time had come for them to receive the promised inheritance of Christ, they were choosing to to stay under the rule of the law and enslavement to works. So the key issue, the the problem that drove Paul to, to wonder if all of his work in these churches had been done in vain was that the Galatians were abandoning the gospel of grace for old lies. They tried to use Jesus as a step stool to climb over the law into heaven rather than relying on him and his righteousness to usher them in through its gates to a father who loved them. And we're choosing slavery over sonship, handcuffs over freedom, poverty over riches, death over life, weakness over strength, rottenness over glory. Repentance is best defined as a turning from something. As a turning from something that is hazardous, toxic, sinful, and a turning to God. There there was something appealing about the way the law was being marketed to the Galatians. Something that appealed to their old sensibilities uh, before they came to know God and His grace. Which is why Paul says they're being drawn back into old ways. This distorted gospel was not leading them to repentance it was leading them to turn from God back to old passions. It was an old lie, repackaged, designed to lead them away from God, the, the, the God who loved them and had chosen them. There's a really infamous parallel here I can't ignore between what the Galatians are doing here and what the, what the Israelites did at Kadesh Barnea when they had just come out of Egypt and then rather go into the promised land. They looked at the giants in the land and they said, We're going to die if we go in there. We're going back to Egypt. And Paul's question in verse 9 is the question we might ask of the Israelites in that instance. How can you turn back for the onions and the leeks of Egypt when you have tasted of the true manna that comes from heaven, Jesus Christ, who is the living bread? Uh, This this passage is a warning. It it should shake you a little bit to read these words. And warnings like this are important. They they fulfill an important role in, in the church. They are meant to wake up sleepy believers before they crash their faith into the ditch of disobedience. They still don't make an energy drink, in my opinion, that is as effective at waking me up instantly like a rumble strip. And when we hear the despair and the pain of Paul's voice, it should make us look at our own faith. I've been driving along and I've heard somebody else run over a rumble strip and it's waking me up more this is what it should do. This is a rumble strip passage, because we have seen so many things, so many wonderful things about how God knows his people, about how he brings them into a relationship of knowledge with him through the work of Jesus, and then yet how Paul is in agony wondering if all his work among the Galatians was in vain, because they didn't truly believe it. I am uh, warnings like this should, are meant to shake us. They're meant to call us to perseverance. I'm so sure of the security of God's grace and love that I don't think in any way that Paul is saying that the Galatians have somehow managed to lose their salvation. Uh, it is certainly possible, likely even, that not all of the people who got this letter repented and turned from this distorted gospel. Uh, their failure to persevere in the faith only confirmed that they never did know Jesus as they professed that they did. But it stands, based on what we've already seen this morning, that that if you can lose your salvation, then salvation is not a matter of grace, and sin is, in fact, stronger than Christ. But we know that neither one of those things is true. Still, believers need to be shaken sometimes so that they will press into the grace they've been called to. And I take a bit of comfort here from the way Paul refers to the Galatians as, as, as sons of God that when they heard this warning, when those rumbles, when their tires hit this rumble strip, that they saw how they were in fact being led into deception, and they repented of it, they returned to the gospel that they had first received. Still, we should take care to learn from the snare that the Galatians fell into, so that we ourselves are not led into a similar situation. There are many ways to distort the gospel, and while Satan is an effective Salesman and an effective marketeer, he is not much of an innovator. Most modern day heresies are old lies and old traps which have just been painted and polished to look like new. But when you press into what they really do, they're old lies. The idea that Jesus only makes us able to keep the law, that we have to earn that salvation through faith and works, that we can make ourselves acceptable in God's A sight, if we're willing to pay a price and put ourselves under the yoke of a law, is found in churches and homes all over the world. It is especially prevalent here in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. There are many, many people here who think they know the gospel. And what they really believe is a gospel that is grace plus works. And that is a dangerous and damning thing. We need to be on alert. We also need to be crying out to them the way Paul cried out to the Galatians to say salvation is by grace alone and Christ alone and it is received through faith alone. That works are important but they are meant to be in obedience of the faith that is within us not a thing that justifies or secures that righteousness. We must cling to the gospel in its purity. When we are united to Christ by faith, we are free to walk in the purity of the knowledge of a holy God. And we are assured by the effectiveness of the work of Jesus that nothing can remove this love and this covenant relationship from us and from him. So let us not return to old ways. Let us instead press on in knowing God and in making him known as we declare how Christ has set us free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is making all things new, the one who rules and reigns, the one who is praised in heaven and exalted and will be for eternity. We ask, Jesus, that you would make much of your name beginning here in this room, extending to our homes, going out into our community, pressing on into our state, our nation, and the world. Lord, we know that your promises are unshakable, and your church has endured by your grace for 2,000 years. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against this rock. And we ask, Father, that we you would press us in into the rock that was cleft for us, that we would be held fast by the, by the grace of Christ, that we would stand on truth, and that we would live in the knowledge of the Holy One. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.